0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
1: This week, we're talking about what we're thankful for, the Federalist Society Convention, and we'll interview former assistant SG Nicole Saharsky.
0: Before we get into the substance of today's episode, we have a request from our listeners. We will give out honors and dishonors for the best and worst judicial opinions of the year in our final episode of 2017. So please, if you have ideas, send your submissions our way with a brief description of why the opinion deserves recognition as either the best or the worst of 2017. So what we're thankful for in this holiday season, we wanted to take a minute here at SCOTUS One, Scotus 101 to thank our listeners, first of all, and all of our wonderful guests that we've had so far this year, and mostly White House counsel Don McGahn.
1: Yes, without Don McGahn, we wouldn't have Neil Gorsuch and all the new fabulous judges such as Stephanos Beebus, Amy Barrett. Joan Larson, Allison Ide, Kevin Newsom, and many more.
0: We're also thankful for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and his leadership on judicial nominations. He took a gamble back in February 2016 by declaring that the American people, and not President Obama, would get to pick Justice Scalia's successor. He held the seat open, and it was an issue that loomed large in the presidential election in 2016. I don't believe the Supreme Court has played such a large role in an election in recent memory. So thank you to Mitch McConnell for helping to ensure Justice Scalia's legacy on the court. And we also can't forget
1: about Chuck Grassley, who's gotten all these judges through their confirmation hearings, and it was also ditched the blue slip where senators have abused the courtesy.
0: At least for appeals court nominees. Yes,
1: indeed. Um, and finally, we're thankful for the growing SCOTUS shortlist. So last week, the president added five new names, including the Dogma Lives Loudly judge Amy Barrett, <laughs>
0: Brett Kavanaugh um, on the D.C. Circuit. Who recently gave the uh, Joseph Story lecture here at Heritage, which you can watch on our website. It was fantastic. Indeed. 11th um,
1: Circuit Judge Kevin Newsom, uh, Georgia Supreme Court Justice Britt Grant, and
0: Oklahoma Supreme Court Justice Patrick Weyrich. So I would point out that Patrick Wyrick is only 36, which is just a few years older than me. So that really uh, requires me to, you know, sort what of ex- doing examine my own life and my career choices. Uh, why, why am I not on a Supreme Court shortlist? <laughs> and I think it's
1: also interesting that Britt Grant— um, clerked for Brett Kavanaugh. So I wonder what Judge Kavanaugh is thinking. He's probably very proud of his former law clerk, but also she could beat him out for the next (laughs) Supreme Court uh,
0: seat. So I wonder what he thinks about that. Yeah, I think he's 52. So uh, he's really the grandpa of the the additions to the SCOTUS shortlist. (laughs) Sorry, Judge Kavanaugh. (laughs) Sorry, we still love you. Uh, So uh, moving on, last week, thousands of conservative lawyers descended upon Washington for the Federalist Society's annual Lawyers Convention. The theme, this year was the administrative state. Tiffany and I both went. We had a great time, and we wanted to highlight a couple of the keynote addresses from the convention. So first up was Justice Neil Gorsuch. He spoke at an evening gala hosted at Union Station, and uh, remarking on how, you know, particularly during the confirmation hearing for him, uh, Senator Whitehouse and others had talked about this sort of shadowy cabal that is the Federalist Society, Uh, Justice Gorsuch said, If you're going to have a meeting of a secret organization, maybe don't have it in the middle of Union Station and then tell everybody to wear black tie. Uh, it, it was certainly easy to spot all of the Federalist Society members. So Justice Gorsuch's talk focused on the separation of powers, and he talked a bit about originalism and textualism, two things we love here at SCOTUS 101. He said neither of which are going anywhere on his watch. So he, he discussed the, the frozen trucker case, which the Senate Democrats tried to use against him during his confirmation hearing. Of course, this was the case of a trucker who had abandoned his disabled vehicle after waiting in the freezing cold for hours. He was subsequently fired. Uh, and Gorsuch dissented from a panel decision ruling in favor of this admittedly very sympathetic litigant uh, because, uh, you know, despite the plain statutory language that supported the employer's decision to fire him. So during his speech, Justice Gorsuch explained that this was a classic example of how, as a judge, he strives to follow the law rather than what he thinks the law ought to be. He said, a good judge would look at this statute and know three things immediately. First off, the law is telling me to do something really stupid, which is, you know, rule against this, you know, this uh, sympathetic litigant who, you know, was just trying to, um, you know, not freeze to death in the cold. Second thing, the law is constitutional and I have no choice but to do that really stupid thing. And third thing, everyone who isn't a lawyer will think that I hate truckers. Now, this was the real laugh line of the night. It got a lot of applause and, and laughter, uh, you know, of everyone at the dinner. And it, it led to a few silly articles on the Internet the next day talking about how Justice Gorsuch, you know, made light and and turned this uh, this litigant into a, a punchline of a joke. Um, I just had a flashback to his confirmation
1: hearing. So I'll amend slightly when you said the Senate Democrats tried to use this against him during his confirmation hearing with the Senate. This is the only thing the Senate Democrats yes. tried to use against him in his confirmation hearing. Um, so it was a flashback to these ridiculous uh, statements they're trying trying to make. And as someone pointed out um, to the one of the people who wrote this article saying, oh, he made a joke about this frozen trucker. It's like, no, he was really making a joke about people like you who <laughs> like don't understand um, how the
0: law works. Yeah, and that there was really nothing else uh, to latch on to 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 criticize uh, Justice Gorsuch. Anyway, the bottom line, Gorsuch said, is that in our legal system, judges wear robes and not capes. Uh, It was a fantastic speech, and I believe it'll be available on the Federal Society's website if you want to check it out. So the next night, I mean, Justice Gorsuch was fantastic, but the next night, the keynote speaker might have been even better. So, Tiffany, tell us about that. The real
1: highlight of the FedSoc convention was hearing from White House counsel Don McGahn, Um, as we mentioned before. Or he is the man responsible for all of these judges. Um, So he he gave um, part of his substantive speech about what the administration is doing to roll back the administrative state. But also, and most importantly, he talked about... um, judges and how this process has worked so he um, he said that during the campaign uh, when Donald Trump was still a candidate Jonathan Bunch from the Federalist Society um, called them up to inquire you know what the how they were going to go about nomination should the should the president win Um, and McGann said oh don't worry about it we've got someone um, who's going to help us so Jonathan Bunch asked well who is it um, and McGann said, oh, former chief of staff, staff to President Bush, John Sununu, he has a lot of experience. Um, this was a huge laugh line at the convention <laughs> because, as we know, John Sununu um, was President George H.W. Bush's advisor on judicial nominations. And he gave us some pretty uh, disappointing
0: um, judges like David Souter. Um Yeah, I think if people didn't know at the time, uh, you know, when Judge Souter, Justice Souter was still on the Supreme Court, that he had actually been appointed by a Republican, you know, that may have surprised many people looking at his voting record. Yeah, and and I hearken back to, I think it was right after...
1: Um, President Trump got elected and John Sununu had some meeting at the White House. There's a picture of him. I think it was Josh Blackman who who tweeted, keep him away from the judicial (laughs) nominations. And we definitely agreed. Um, But back to the the call with Don McGann and and Jonathan Bunch. So um, Jonathan apparently seemed quite alarmed at this, but he wasn't trying to to make a big deal, but he um, but he kind of gasped. And so McG- McGahn said, well, we're gonna have him uh, make a couple of different lists. The first list, we want mainstream folks, not a big paper trail, the kind of folks who would get through the Senate and will make us feel good that we've got that we've put some pragmatist folks on the bench. <laughs> um, I think this is when when Jonathan gas, I think he was obviously referring to um, you know judges like uh, David Souter. Uh, but then he said, we're gonna to have a second list and the second list, um, is going to be folks who are too hot for prime time, the kind that would be really hot in the Senate, probably who people who've written a lot. We'd really like to get a sense of their views, and we want to make, sure, uh, make sure they're the kind of people um, that would make some people nervous. Um, and so John, Jonathan said, well, what are you going to do with the list? And McGann said, well, we're going to th- take the first list and throw it in the trash. <laughs> and the second list is what we're going to put before the Senate. And I know uh, Leader McConnell is going to get it done. And he has certainly um, done that and is well on his way to to doing more of it. Um, but McGann, you know, wrapped up talking about how uh, judicial nominations has been a huge Um, focus of this administration, and I think they've been doing a great job, and they should keep it up. Indeed. So next we're going to talk with Nicole Saharski. We're pleased to have Nicole Saharski with us today. She's a partner at Gibson Dunn, and she served as the assistant to the Solicitor General for 10 years. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Nicole. Glad to be
0: here. So you served under several Solicitors General, spanning two administrations, Paul Clement, Greg Garr, Elena Kagan, Don Varilli. Could you tell us about your experience working for all of these impressive SGs and what you learned from them?
2: Sure. Actually, the first person I worked for when I came to Washington was Ted Olson, who was Solicitor General. I did a Bristow Fellowship in the SG's office, which you guys probably know is a one-year fellowship that you do after a federal clerkship. And so Ted was SG then, worked for him. And then by the time that uh, I finished that Bristow Fellowship, Ted was just leaving and Paul was taking over. So, you know, these these people who are SG are like uniformly, incredibly smart, incredibly dedicated The thing that I think all of them had in common was really a respect for the office and the career attorneys in the office and the role of the office at the Supreme Court, that sort of thing. But, you know, each of them had their own personalities. So, for example, Ted was definitely the kind of old school law firm partner type, but he was just incredibly engaged. When I when I first got there, I was, you know, a year out of law school and I wrote a memo about whether the government should appeal in some criminal case. And he came up to me in the hallway like a few days later and started talking to me about it. And I thought, like, I can't believe you read my memo. That's so exciting. But, (laughs) you know, he had, of course, he had to do that because that's the SG's job to authorize appeals. And so I thought that was really great that someone so senior, you know, could be that down to earth. You know, Paul was a little bit different in that he came in and he was so young and he had so much energy. And he really was so good at figuring out like the heart of the case. Right. Like what was really going to move the justices and that sort of thing. Um, and then Greg, who took over for Paul, Greg was is such a pragmatist. And that was so good, because especially now, I think the court is moving towards, you know, what makes sense and do we not just what the law, what precedents suggest, but like, does this outcome make sense? And Greg, I think, is really attuned to that. And so, you know, that was great. Uh, Justice Kagan, she was so sharp. She, she, you know, you probably have seen this on the court, right? She gets things so quickly. Mm-hmm. She just on and, and any issue, even if she was never familiar with it, she just gets it so fast. And I think that kind of, you know, insight is, is motivates how she is as a justice, right? Like she kind of gets the issues and she goes right at them at oral argument. And then Don, Don was really wonderful, especially in the time that he served, because there were a lot of very tricky cases that just required like a very calming presence and some judgment but also an ability to reconcile diverse views within the federal government. So on, <laughs> well, like on the healthcare cases or on marriage equality or some of these really big cases for the government, you know, there needed to be a presence who was really you know, moving the United States in the right direction. And I think he was that person.
0: So you've argued 29 cases at the Supreme Court. Which arguments were the most memorable for you?
2: Well, probably the first one, just because I didn't know what to expect. Like you, just anyone who's done this, I think, would say you just don't know what to expect. You don't know if you're going to throw up or pass <laughs> out. You just don't know what's going to happen, right? And so, that that was pretty memorable. Um, also, it was a very short argument. I had 30 minutes, but I only ended up using seven of the minutes, like allotted, because our position was pretty straightforward and we were pretty clearly right. We won 9-0 later, so you know. Um, Also, there was a big securities uh, securities fraud case that I argued called Erica P. John Fund, had to do with the fraud on the market theory. And the reason that it's memorable is because my mom and dad were in the audience. (laughs) And my mom, they, they came a lot because it's fun for them to do. But my mom is very social, much more social than I am. And she made friends with Erica John, like the, <laughs> the person who ran the Erica John fund, who my parents are from Wisconsin, and the Erica John fund was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was like a charitable trust that this family had put together. And so after the argument, you know, my mom didn't really care about securities fraud, but she said, I met the nicest lady at the Supreme Court today. <laughs> and I said, like, who's that? And she said, her name is Erica John. I said, of oh, the Erica P. John Fund? <laughs> you, like the named person in the case? I said, don't talk to someone if they're the named person in the case. Like, I'm a lawyer in the case, you know. I mean, she was. we were on her side, but still. So, yeah, I'm definitely not going to forget that one. That's, That's great. <laughs> That's
1: funny. So when you argued your first case, did anything surprise you about the court or about how our oral arguments were conducted?
2: I think part of it is that as an advocate, you're so close to them. I don't know if you guys feel, felt this way, like the first time you went to the Supreme Court, the justices are just right there, yeah. right? They're yeah. just right there. And they're doing all the same things that you expect them to do based on kind of what you'd heard about how they behave in court and you know how they ask questions, that sort of thing. And so part of it is I just didn't realize that that it would be, I'd be like right there, you know, so close to them that I could just have a conversation with them, which was pretty cool. Um, I suppose the other thing I didn't realize is that it's really hard to think on your feet because so many thoughts are going through your head while you're arguing. You're thinking like, am I really understanding what this question is and how much time do I have left? And should I be doing, should I be making some other point? And it's, it's you have a lot going through your mind. And I guess I didn't realize like how hard it would be to really think through answers, especially you know, from I've gotten, like, in one case, I got a math question. Justice, <laughs> justice Alito asked me this math question, and I, I just, like, there was no way I was going to figure out the math, so I said something like, that sounds right. And then afterwards, someone from whatever agency, the SEC or labor or wherever, said, oh, you got that one right. And I thought, there's no way I'm doing a math question up there. That's just impossible. <laughs> um, so which justice or justices did you most enjoy getting questions from? I think that's a tough question because i I pretty much like any question just because I would much rather answer questions than just sit up there and talk. I would love to get a question from Justice Thomas, but that's never happened. <laughs> I think he has such a nice voice. You know, I would love to hear he one. He does. But. Yeah. It's very deep. Um, who, who asks the most difficult questions? I think, you know, as a general matter, it, it, I, specifically it depends on the case. But as a general matter, I think Justices Alito and Kagan ask very, very incisive questions. Like they will both hold back and then just ask a question that could decide the entire case. For Justice Alito, it's usually like a hypothetical that if you answer the hypothetical yes, it just shows that your position is ridiculous. He's very good at those. (laughs) Justice Kagan usually just does it as like getting to the question that is the absolute heart of the case and asking you it. And then if she doesn't understand or like your answer, asking you it again and again and again.
1: (laughs) Um, So is there one particular area of law um, for which you became kind of the go-to assistant SG? Or did you have a favorite area of law that you got to work on?
2: So, you know, in the SG's office, we don't, the assistants don't really specialize. The idea is we should be able to do a case in just about anything. Um, But I did a lot of Fourth, Fifth and Sixth Amendment criminal procedure cases that I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, Also securities law, which was pretty interesting. And then during the end of my time in the government, we had some big disputes involving Puerto Rico, a lot of very timely issues. And I thought the, the, the issues regarding the U.S. territories were really interesting.
0: So there's been some discussion recently about the lack of women who argue cases before the Supreme Court. Along with two other alums of the SG's office, you, Lisa Blatt, and Patricia Millett, who's now a D.C. Circuit judge, uh, the three of you topped the list of female advocates with around 30 cases each. What's your take on this phenomenon?
2: I mean, I think there are a lot of great women advocates now, and there haven't been in the past, and that's just because a lot of people become Supreme Court advocates through the SG's office, and for a period of time up to a few decades ago, there just weren't really women working in the SG's office, but now there are, and there are women both in the SG's office and outside the SG's office. I mean, just this past year, there are a number of women who left to go to private practice. Me, uh, Ginger Anders, and Elaine Goldenberg at Munger, Tolson Olsen. Sarah Harrington at Um, Goldstein and Russell, Melissa Arbusheri before that going to Latham. So, I mean, there's definitely now this group out there in private practice of strong women advocates. So
0: I think you'll all be fighting for the same cases.
2: (laughs) I think that we're hoping to be more collaborative than that. You know, there are always you always need friends in the court, right? Your amicus briefs or your mooters, or whatever else it is.
0: So as you mentioned, we've seen a number of attorneys leave the SG's office for private practice in recent months, including you. Prateek Shah has said he's chalked this up to a sort of natural progression and not a reflection of the change of it in administrations. What do you think?
2: Well, I mean – Certainly, it's a reflection of the change in administration to the extent that some people got jobs in the administration, right? John Bash, who went to the White House and is now going to be a U.S. attorney in Texas. Curtis Gannon, who's been the principal deputy over at the Office of Legal Counsel, that sort of thing. You know, other than that, I think each person makes his or her own individual decision about how long to stay. Most folks stay five to seven years as an assistant. I was there for 10 years. After my ninth year, I pretty much told the deputies I thought one more year was going to be it just because I wanted to move on and try new things. And I think my friends who I've talked to that have left kind of made the same determination, like what makes sense for them, their families, their careers, that sort of thing.
1: So one final question. If you could have a conversation with
2: any Supreme Court
1: justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
2: So I guess I have two answers. Um, You know, the first answer is I would love to have a very frank conversation with Justice Ginsburg about women's rights issues in the United States. And I don't feel like I can do that because I'm an advocate who practices before the court. But, you know, I'd really love to talk to her about what it was like in the cases that she litigated and how she thinks things are going and, you know, what she thinks are issues for the future Just because that's an area in which I would like to make an impact. And so she's the kind of person I would love to talk to about those sorts of things. I mean, that's the kind of thing my friends talk about. My friends have left the SG's office and I talk about all the time. You know, I think on a lighter note, I would love to have pizza with Justice Scalia. (laughs) (laughs) And...
0: Anchovy pizza?
2: <laughs> no, I'm a vegetarian, so so I don't know how much he would like that. But um, and I would invite my dad because my dad loves Justice Scalia. Like to my dad, Justice Scalia is the exact right combination of like. You know, conservative principles and Catholicism and liking meat, which my dad, (laughs) I'm a vegetarian and a Democrat, so I'm very disappointing to my dad. But Justice Scalia is like everything my dad stands for, basically. And so I wouldn't, I mean, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations with Justice Scalia about law, you know, in the courtroom where he told me why I was usually wrong in some particular case, uh, in his view. But like, I would just like to have a fun, go out and have some pizza and that sort of thing. I love delicious food. And I certainly had the sense that, you know, Justice Scalia had, you know, kind of that zest for life and having fun and that sort of thing. And if I could bring my dad, like my dad would absolutely love that.
0: I think that sounds like a good time. (laughs) Well, Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Glad to do it. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme
1: Trivia Thanksgiving edition where I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth. Uh oh. Now I'll mention before we start that uh, the first two of these questions are Article 3-ish Questions, but the second two are Article Two-ish questions um, because you know a lot of Thanksgiving traditions revolve around the president. Okay, so first question: What type of Thanksgiving food was involved in an illegal price discrimination suit at the Supreme Court?
0: Um, Wasn't there a pumpkin pie case? It was pie, yes. So in <laughs> Utah,
1: um, I don't know if it was pumpkin. I didn't, I didn't read the whole case. Well, we'll
0: say it's pumpkin pie
1: <laughs> yes. in keeping
0: the, with the holiday this week. A
1: 1967 case Utah pie company against Continental Baking. So this involved a challenge by the Utah pie company who sued three other pie companies for a conspiracy to drive it out of business. <laughs> okay, second question. Which Chief Justice discussed the religious significance of Thanksgiving um, in Lynch v. Donnelly, a case about a nativity scene sponsored by a town?
0: Lynch v. Donnelly. That would have been in the 80s, so I'm going to say Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Uh, no, it was in the 80s, but it was a Chief Justice Warren Burger <gasps>
1: at the time, early 80s. Um, so, Justice Burger... Um, pointed, noted the religious significance and history of Thanksgiving, even though it's now largely seen as a secular holiday. But this is, you know, as you well know, pretty disputed, um, which leads us into our third question. What president um, refused to issue Thanksgiving proclamations because he believed that they violated the Constitution?
0: Oh, Thomas Jefferson.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. Fourth and final question. Who is the first president to officially pardon a turkey? Oh,
0: officially pardon a turkey.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, President Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday, right? Yes, um, I think so. I'm gonna say it was something like in the in the mid 20th century. So let's go with Eisenhower. <laughs> So while the tradition is traced back to
1: Abraham Lincoln, George H.W. Bush was the first president to officially pardon (laughs) a turkey for Thanksgiving.
0: (laughs) That's great. Uh, Elizabeth, you did a great job. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101
1: at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.